0: While you sort out your 2022 budget, think about this. You can save 72% on restaurant-quality meals with a meal service that we love, HelloFresh. Their meals taste amazing, and you don't even need to hit the grocery store. Get 16 free meals plus three gifts with code SISTERS16 at hellofresh.com SISTERS16. That's hellofresh.com slash SISTERS16, or look for the link in our show notes.
1: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-In-Law with Joyce Vance, Joanne banks Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. I hope you've all seen our amazing Hashtag Sisters-In-Law merch. Go to politicon.com slash merch and get yourself a Sisters-In-Law t-shirt, hoodie, that one's my favorite, and much more. But first, I'm so excited that this is our one-year anniversary here at hashtag Sisters in Law. And we really want you to participate too. Go to Twitter, use the hashtag Sisters in Law, and tweet about something that you've learned in the last year with us. That's why we're here to help teach about law and and how it affects our democracy, how it affects your lives. So let us know what you've learned. We will be uh, on Sunday uh, picking one of your responses, and the lucky winner will get some sisters-in-law merch—a nice little sisters-in-law prize pack. So don't forget to do that. And and we're so excited about the fact that it is our one-year anniversary, guys. I can't believe it, it. A lot of ways the last year has gone by very slowly, but when it comes to this podcast and working with you all, I feel like it's gone by in a blink of an eye. What do you think? It's been an amazing experience, and. Deepening the
2: relationships with all of you has been just one of the best things in my life during lockdown, and it would be even if we weren't in lockdown. Just getting to talk to you every week for the recording, but sharing texts throughout the week talking about what are we going to talk about and what's really important and sharing our highs and our lows about the news of the day has been just really rewarding and interacting with our audience. We get the best emails from our listeners and such great questions, such a smart group of people. They really make me feel like a better person. And what about you, Barb?
3: That's so nice, Jill. You're so nice (laughs) to us and our listeners. Um, you know, sometimes I, I'm sarcastic with you guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> we love you, Barb. We love, love you. You're the funny one. We <laughs> yeah, love you. Sorry. But um, yeah, like like you both, I've learned I've learned so much from you. You know, it's so great to have relationships like that with, you know, friends. I it's one of the things I really miss about working in the US attorney's office because I had a lot of uh, colleagues there who um, you know were paying attention to things in the law, who had really interesting perspectives, and I really loved to hear what they had to say because sometimes they had a different perspective from my own, and it can be very eye opening, and it can make you think about things in a different way than you did before. So you know who could forget the uh, the cussing cheerleader? <laughs> mm-hmm. What do we call her? The give uh, me an F. <laughs> give, me, give me an F. Um, the cheerle- You know, and we had you know different perspectives on that, and so I've uh, I've really loved. I've, I really look forward to these conversations at the end of the week. You know, we. Late Friday afternoons. And it's always so much fun to get together. And, you know, again, like those conversations in the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, sometimes very serious discussions, but never taking ourselves too seriously. And, you know, sometimes just some laughs over the absurdity of it all. So I've really enjoyed our conversations in the past year. And I've learned many interesting things about yeah. all of you. You know, Joyce, I've learned <laughs> about raising chickens. And um, from Kim, I've learned about how to fashion a room uh, with a, a tasteful eye. And uh, Jill, who has been just about everywhere, including general counsel of the Army, I've learned a lot of interesting things from all of you. How about you, Joyce?
0: You know, I feel the same. First off, I love y'all. You guys are, are wonderful and have become unbelievably important to me. And I love our listeners, too. I feel like we have a little bit of a community going on here. And then I sort of think, oh, Joyce, you're being silly because, you know, you're on a, an, on a computer and people are all across the country. But I think in a very real way, we, we are a community, even though we're far apart and, and living through a pandemic. Um, I'll be the serious one for just a second and say one of my students has been telling me she's had so much trouble staying engaged. She was always very politically active. She's very smart. Um, But she's been so overwhelmed by everything that's been going on that she feels like she's dropped out a little bit. And that's something that I'm grateful to the three of you for. At points in time where things have felt overwhelming, and I know we've all felt that about the news in the last five years at some point, just the thought of getting to talk to y'all on Friday or or our email exchanges, our texts during the week, that's been enough to convince me to go back and re-engage, not to get down about the news, to always find a path forward. And I love y'all for that. Yeah. And I think
1: one thing that our listeners may not realize is the, the podcast each week is just a snapshot of what we do on text messages and emails. Literally, all week long, and that's one of my favorite things about this. <laughs> whether it's about you know the the latest legal news that it's that comes up, we're discussing it amongst ourselves. I'm asking them questions. Uh, it, it's it's really a wonderful support system to have all the time. And what our podcast really has become is just a little peek inside the way we discuss things all week long. Um, I've always admired all three of you all and your work um, and your intellect. Uh, and so having a chance to not only uh enjoy this project together, but become better friends with all of you has been truly, truly a wonderful thing. So I'm very grateful for that. And I'm very grateful for our listeners as well. And today we will be discussing... Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement announcement. We'll also be talking about some of the cases that his replacement will be considering at the Supreme Court, and also the Fulton County, Georgia grand jury probing possible election interference by Donald Trump. And as always, at the end of the show, we'll be answering some of your questions, which is one of our favorite things to do. So let's get into Justice Breyer's announcement.
3: Well, Justice Stephen Breyer has announced his retirement from the Supreme Court. Uh, we all know that Justice Breyer was seen as a reliably liberal vote, a pragmatist, a consensus builder. Kim, you've been a Supreme Court reporter. Can you share any insights about Justice Breyer and his service on the court?
1: Yes. So, uh on the one hand, we know from his opinions that Justice Breyer has really left uh, an important mark on the court with uh, the, the decisions that the court has made. Notably, he has been the author of a few uh, opinions on abortion that uh, was meant to uphold the rights uh, of abortion access and really a, a adhere to the principle of stare decisis, um, in that uh, we have Roe v. Wade and we have Casey and all its progeny, and that the uh, settled law of the land is that women have a constitutional right to abortion access. And he even spoke out in an interview after the court, uh, the now very conservative court, allowed Texas's most restrictive abortion law in the country to go into effect, uh, saying that he thought that that decision was very, very, very wrong and added another very, um, he's also spoken out against things like the death penalty. Um, and so he certainly has, uh, uh, underscored the fact that he is a powerful and forceful voice, particularly on uh, the more liberal-leaning side of the court. But he's also, as you said, Barb, been a pragmatist. He has looked for ways to bring the court together, to build consensus. You could see it in oral arguments. You know, we talk about the fact that he's very professorial when he asks questions. He gives these long, uh, <laughs> sometimes complicated hypotheticals that reminds those of us who went to law school of being in class. He really is a professor. But what he's trying to find, usually, is some rule, not only sort of nailing down exactly what the court um, should rule, how they should rule, what, what rule or standard they should put into place. But he's also speaking to his fellow justices and making them think about the real world impact of the decision that they're about to uh, hand down, how it will impact people like you and me. And it's that kind of pragmatism that really has marked his tenure on the court. And I've, uh, you know, I was there for the better part of a decade covering the court. And it was really a pleasure to see that, to see that happen.
3: Yeah. You know, if you had a chance to see his um, little farewell speech with uh, President Biden, where he was announcing his retirement, I think you saw that. I mean, he was, it was, it was just lovely. He talked about, you know, the importance of the rule of law and how, you know, we live in this country with more than 330 million people and everybody's so different and we have all kinds of disputes. But what is so important is that we've all agreed that we will go to court and we'll let a judge decide and we will follow their ruling. And that is the difference between, you know, a a rule of law country and anarchy. And I think we're starting to see some erosions in that, but that's what's so important is, you know, we can disagree all day as long as we do agree on one thing and that is that we will respect the decisions of the court. Mm -hmm. Um, Joyce, I wanna ask you about the dynamics of the makeup of the court. You know, now that we've got this 6-3 conservative majority since President Biden is simply replacing a Clinton appointee, does Breyer's replacement really matter? Uh, you know, as we go forward, what difference does it make? It was six three before, and it's going to be 6-3 again, does it really advance the ball in any way?
0: You know, it doesn't necessarily advance the ball. The court will still be a 6-3 conservative majority. But of course, we know that personalities of justices matter, and it's always good to bring new blood to an enterprise. Perhaps the right nominee uh, for this seat will find ways to talk with folks on the conservative side of the aisle, just like Ruth Bader Ginsburg forged a very unlikely friendship with Antonin Scalia. Those persons relationships, um, I think, can bear fruit. But more importantly, Barb, is, is the long-term implication of, of what happens here. By resigning now, Justice Breyer has presented a future 7-2 majority, at least based on on him leaving his seat when a Republican had the ability to nominate. So this keeps, if, if not um, sort of equality or some sort of balance between the conservative and, and progressive ends of the court, at, at least the prospect of future parity.
3: Yeah, and as you say, you know this idea of a consensus builder, and I always think, uh, you know, just having a new voice at the table forces you to think about different things. When people say, "What about this?" or "What about this perspective?" or "What about this experience?", um, you know, when you're surrounded by people who are like minded, or even people who've been, just been together for too long, you, you kind of know predictably. Well, he's going to raise this, and she's going to talk about about this, and he's going, and then having a new voice at the table makes you go, "Huh, hadn't thought about that before." So I think a different perspective and a new voice can be very valuable to uh, to the group. Um, Jill, let me ask you this. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg used to say that uh, dissents, she, she wrote a lot of famous dissents, are not written for the present, but for the future. How, how can a justice, even in the minority, and, and this new justice will likely be in the minority for some time, shape the law in the years to come? It's a great question, Barb.
2: And Um, I think part of Justice Breyer's legacy is going to be his dissents because in all the years he was on the court for almost three decades, 28 years, he was in the minority. And so many of his most uh, persuasive opinions are dissents. But dissents become the law by being used in other courts they are relied upon saying well in dissent this was argued and that moves the law forward and eventually there will be lower courts that start saying well we think that this makes sense in the facts of this case and eventually there may be enough change in the Supreme Court's makeup, that those opinions will be adopted by the full court and become the law of the land. And I I think Justice Breyer was a unique intellect and a man who, you know, he's known as sort of a renaissance man because he brought to the court not just his legal knowledge, but so many other aspects. And I I think it was either maybe uh, Kim mentioned the personalities that become very much a part of how decisions are made. And so the new justice is going to have to kind of get to know the other justices and forge her own relationships with them. But he was able to perhaps have conversations that other justices couldn't have had. And I hope that his language will become the law of the land from his dissents.
3: Yeah, interesting. Well, We've talked about Justice Breyer, and now I want to talk about maybe who might be next, who's going to fill that seat. President Biden is committed to appointing an African-American woman, which is kind of exciting. And I want to ask you all who you think that might be and why. But first, I want to discuss the idea of committing to choosing a nominee of a particular demographic, in this case, a black woman. I've heard some very offensive remarks about this commitment. Kim, we were talking mm-hmm. about that earlier, um, you know, that certain candidates are more qualified, but, you know, we don't even know who the nominee is. So you're essentially saying that their their favorite candidate is more qualified than any African-American woman that Biden could possibly name. Um, but what's your view about President Biden's commitment to an African-American woman? I'm, I'm curious to, to hear what you think about that. Kim, I'll start with you.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting when we have a system where due to – uh, institutional racism there has never been a black woman woman on the US supreme court and when a president says you know what i'm going to do my part to try to uh, have a court that is more reflective of our actual population this court that is making decisions that affect everyone perhaps it should look a little bit more uh, like the population of the, the of the american people people come in and say oh well you're you're just you know this is just identity politics and you're just trying to fill a quota And and this isn't about qualifications. When clearly all of the names, and we'll talk, you know, specifically about names later, but all of the names that have been floated have been of eminently qualified individuals who, just because of the barriers in place, have never had the opportunity to ascend to the U.S. Supreme Court. So obviously, I find that very offensive. Uh, But it's something that we expected. Recall. That when Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the first Latina justice, uh, was um, in the middle of her confirmation process and uh, the conservatives who opposed her found a speech that she had made when she talked about her lived experience as a woman who grew up uh, knowing what poverty was, who, who lived in a, a um, housing development with her family as a child, who still went on to college and law school, actually was uh, the editor of the Yale uh, Law Review and um, But all that lived experience, including being a Latina, would help her actually on the bench. It would help inform the decisions that she made. Uh, And she used the term wise Latina. That was weaponized against her. So I was expecting this kind of treatment. It's still disappointing. But I think, I hope, given where we've been as a nation over the last two years, And the understanding of all the ways that systemic racism uh, affects not just black and brown folks, but everyone, makes the country a worse place for everyone, that we can rise above that, and that this can be seen as a moment that we can be proud, um, that we are recognizing the need for that diversity, and that we have someone, uh, a president who is committed to, in this one small act, that won't fix it all, uh, but at least help push the, the judiciary in a better direction uh, and be more reflective of the population who uh, its opinions will affect. Yeah. Joyce, how about
3: you? What are your thoughts about this commitment? But before we get to Joyce, could I just add something yeah. to what
2: uh, Kim said? Because um, as the oldest member of this group, um, when I started, there were no women teaching me. There were no women on the bench and When Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed as the first woman, uh, it it suddenly was, oh, that's something that I could... And I was already a lawyer. I I had already argued in the Supreme Court, but now suddenly I could actually aspire to. It was very inspirational. And we also have so much evidence, so much research that shows diversity on corporate boards, diversity in education a subject we'll talk about later today too. And diversity on the bench makes a difference to our country. And so having this diversity, and that diversity is not just racial, it's geographic, it's experience, either having grown up in poverty or, having grown up as a civil rights advocate as opposed to being a prosecutor. Um, I shouldn't say as opposed to, because prosecutors believe in the rule of law and civil rights as well as anybody else. But having the experience of having been an advocate in your career all makes a big difference. And so the discussion about whether this should happen is just something that shouldn't even be being discussed. It has to happen. This is essential. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of the first female professors. She was not at Columbia when I was a student there, but when I came back to teach at Columbia she was. And all of a sudden there were women who were teaching at Columbia. It made a big difference, I think, to the students, and it made a difference to me as a lawyer, so i'm glad that it's happening, yeah,
3: all those reasons make a lot of sense Joyce how about you what are your What are your thoughts about it? You know, Kim, I thought that you
0: were remarkably optimistic. You saw this as a teachable moment and thought it was a moment where we would make progress and i 'm usually pretty optimistic, but I have to confess that I just um I lack that optimism here. I think some of the comments that i've heard haven 't just been offensive. I think that they've been made in bad faith, and I think that they're mean-spirited. I think it's people um, who are, frankly, threatened by and worried about the fact that black women are increasingly becoming full participants in society, and that— that means that they personally have to compete against an increasingly talented pool of people and, and they're trying to prevent it from happening. So, look, I, I just think it's off the table to complain about Biden committing to appoint a black woman, because for so many years, when a president announced that he was going to select a new Supreme Court justice, he didn't have to say, I'm choosing from a pool of white men, because everybody right. understood that, right. that that was who the pool was. Um, this is, is really a good thing for all of us to make the Supreme Court look more like the community. There is an unbelievably deep bench of really talented black women out there. Some of them, you know, friends of the podcast, Sherilyn Eiffel and Melissa Murray. Um, yes. Judges who are incredibly— okay, And
3: before we get into individual people, I just want to wrap up I,
0: this I get thread that, about I, the idea. Yeah, I get that we're going to talk about individuals, but the point that I wanted to make is— these, these are real people. They're human beings, yeah. some of whom we know and, and some who we don't. And I think it's really painful to look at this sort of cheap criticism um, being lobbed at, at women. And folks can condemn our podcast as being part of the critical race theory movement if they want to. But this is structural racism <laughs> in practice. We are overdue for a, a woman on the Supreme Court.
3: I'll get off my soapbox, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, I I totally agree. So I I want to mention several points why I think this is a moment whose time is long overdue. Um, some of you have mentioned. I mean, one is diversity. The value of diversity is groups make better decisions when they are diverse. There's a professor here at the University of Michigan named Scott Page who has done research on this issue. And he uh, talks about groups and why diversity in juries is more important, because when you bring all those different perspectives to the table, you are better at solving problems. You think about things that are absent when you all have the same background, you become an echo chamber of each other and having different experiences is super valuable. Um, Representation is very valuable. Jill, you talked about this. If you don't see somebody like you in a position, it is very difficult to imagine yourself in that job. Seeing is believing. And having a, a, a black woman on that court will convince uh, thousands of little girls that they too can be on the Supreme Court someday, I think that 's incredibly important. The legitimacy of the court it matters to know this isn 't just a bunch of rich white guys deciding my fate. there is representation at the table of people and we need you know we need diversity of all kinds and we 're you know just slowly, slowly chipping away um, but to to have representation of a black woman, a woman of color who can say, I have a different perspective, says to people who are going to agree to abide by those decisions, the way Stephen Breyer said, um, to know that there's somebody there who has a perspective that might reflect the perspective of the litigants is incredibly valuable. And then here's one I really want to address, which is this. I hear this from time to time from white people, white lawyers, who say, um, this is racial discrimination. It's racist for Joe Biden to say, I'm gonna pick a a black woman. Uh, This is reverse discrimination. You can't say I'm going to exclude all black candidates or all white candidates, even though they might be the most qualified. Um, Two things, number one, there's no such thing as the most qualified. There are hundreds of people who are qualified for this job, depending on what you measure. And there are lots of things. You want experience, uh, probably somebody who's been a judge before so that there is a record. Lived experience counts for something too. So the idea that there's one and only one most qualified person in America to do this job is just wrong. There's lots of people who have different qualifications. The other is... In our country, although there are all kinds of rights under our Constitution, um, none of them are absolute. And so this idea of equal protection under the law and it's illegal to, to discriminate against people based on race uh, is true, except when there is a compelling governmental interest that is that outweighs that. And so adding a black woman to the court is a compelling governmental interest. And yes. so choosing someone in this instance— it is important to advance that interest. That's why affirmative action programs are lawful when they are narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. And so for now uh, here, I think Joe Biden is well within his rights uh, to choose somebody uh, to represent and, and uh, correct a wrong that has been uh, perpetrated against our country and our Supreme Court for hundreds of years.
1: I think right. you're absolutely right. Let's move you're- on.
3: <laughs> Let's move on then to <laughs> who we think is gonna be the best choice. I'll go I'll go back around the horn. Kim, who's your
1: who's on your short list? Well, I have said many times before on this podcast and elsewhere that I believe that the best candidate would be Sherilyn Eiffel. Um, it, she is fantastic. Uh, listen to our other podcast where I listen. where I list all the reasons why I think, unfortunately, the politics get in the way of that nomination. I believe uh, that Republicans would do everything they could do to try to stop her based on her work um, in civil rights. And I also think that Democrats are really because of the, politi- the how this has been politicized, are interested in putting someone as young as possible on the court. Yeah. Um, The same way, you know, we record this on Amy Coney Barrett's 50th birthday. She's the youngest Mm. justice on the court. She will be there Mm. for decades. So they want that, too. So I think the top contender is probably Kataji Brown Jackson. She is a judge on the D.C. Circuit. She was only confirmed last year. And that's a big benefit because she has been confirmed by the Senate, gone through this Senate Judiciary Committee and three Republicans voted in her favor. Uh, Senators uh, Murkowski, Collins, uh, and Graham all voted for her. So it would be very difficult to try to make a case as to why they cannot do that again. Um, she's been vetted. She is a little factoid. She is related by marriage to former House Speaker Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, <laughs> who spoke, introduced her and spoke in her favor uh, during her confirmation hearing. So I think politically, that's probably the easiest easiest uh, route to go if they're looking to do this quickly, which Democrats want to do. They want to do it as quickly as Barrett was confirmed. Uh, That does not say that any of the other candidates that have been mentioned are not eminently qualified they are, but that's where I would put my money.
3: And uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson also has the distinction of in college at Harvard Having um, been in, in a theater class and doing a scene with Matt Damon. Really?
1: <laughs> well, so that alone. I know,
3: right? She's t- in. Cool. Yeah. Right. No, that's, that's a fun fact. Um, Joyce, who's your who's on your short list? You know, I think Kim is
0: right. I think it'll be Judge Katanji uh, Brown Jackson because she is so eminently confirmable. So I'll just say this. She's not just confirmable. She's also super qualified, Something that's very interesting in her background is that she spent years on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and of course it was Justice Breyer, who she clerked for, who wrote the remedial opinion in Booker, which is the sentencing guidelines case, which sort of salvaged the prospect of sentencing in federal criminal cases after a 5-4 majority of the court held that the mandatory guidelines were unconstitutional. That situation has been in flux ever since then. There hasn't been a big new sentencing case. She would be a real asset to the court moving forward, frankly, because this area is ripe for
3: review. All right, Jill, how about you? Who's on your short list?
0: Well, first I
3: have
2: to say the obvious, which is that, and this is something that uh, Melissa Murray said today on television, so it's not unique to me, is that there is a plethora of talented, smart well-qualified black women to serve as Supreme Court justices. And so when we look at the list, and, and just to be specific, Sherilyn is, I think, 60, and which is the age yeah. issue uh, concerning her not having long enough left to serve, um, which I think is a bad idea because the years of experience that you get between 50 and 60 are worth something. And we shouldn't be worried about this, um, which may mean we ought to be looking at changing how the Supreme Court yep. appointments go and whether there are term limits. But, uh, and I agree with what everyone has said, that Katanji seems to be the lead candidate, but I wouldn't weigh out Jim yes. Clyburn. And he's got a, yeah. a, a real favorite here. And... Uh, Judge Childs is certainly well qualified, and she would represent a different um, background on the court. She is not a Ivy League graduate, uh, which Ketanji is, and which, except for Amy Coney Barrett, who is the first non-Ivy League, uh, maybe not the first ever in history, but the, first the only in while, one in my yeah. lifetime that I can think of. Yeah, it's certainly the first in a long time to not be an Ivy League, and and although I am an Ivy League graduate, and you know, think it's really great experience. I also went to a state university for undergrad, and I think having that representation is not a bad thing. Uh, Kruger is another name who also has a, a different background, but Childs is a woman of the South, both in education and uh, where she lived, and she has a really strong supporter. So I'm I'm not going to
0: weigh her out. And Can I she just would be jump in on that one? Because I think that's a good point. She has her, She's a district judge in South Carolina. Confirmation hearing for a, a position on the D.C. Court of Appeals scheduled this Monday. I think this is Jim Clyburn, the master politician, setting her up for the next spot, just getting her profile out there, getting her on the yeah. short list. Mm-hmm. It would be lovely mm-hmm. to have two black women on the Supreme Court.
2: And she could also be on the Court of Appeals for the District very of Columbia important. in the interim. But I'm just saying, you know, maybe he isn't serious about it, but I, I don't ever underestimate his seriousness. And um, let's face it, Biden owes his election to Jim Clyburn or getting the
1: nomination to Jim Clyburn. And so I'm sure he's taking very seriously the advice of Jim Clyburn. And don't rule anybody else out. I mean, clearly, you know, we know that President Biden has spoken to Judge Jackson. But recall when Stephen Breyer got his post, it was a year after he first interviewed for it. He went in, he'd been injured in a bicycle accident, to be fair. But, you know, some thought he was a shoo-in because he was so close with the Senate Judiciary Chairman at the time, Ted Kennedy. Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg goes in and wowed Bill Clinton, and she got that nod. So you, you never know Does that know mean what's we can ahead. harbor yeah. hopes It's Sherilyn.
3: Ha. So a couple of points on that. Um, you know, you, you think there's this short list, and they're all reporting the same names. You know, there's Jackson, there's Kruger, uh, there's Michelle Childs, all these top names. And then sometimes people come out of nowhere. Um, and remember, David Souter, he had been yes. a Supreme Court justice out of New Hampshire, and at the time, um, you know, it was sort of after the Bork stuff. People were really worried about anybody who had a track record was going to get tripped up in their congressional hearings. And so they were looking for people who are kind of less well-known because they didn't have such a track record. So because he was so unknown, it made him an attractive candidate. So there could be a name that we just haven't even heard yet. The other uh, point I'll I'll make is remember the names. Joyce, you'll remember these names. uh, Kimba Wood and Zoe Baird. I remember those uh, yes. Janet yes. Reno became the first yeah. uh, woman attorney general of the United yeah. States because the first two candidates tripped up. They had problems. It was, you know, nanny taxes, I think, yeah. that they failed Zoe to pay Baird. taxes. Yeah. And so their, uh, I think they both had the same Zoe, problem, yeah. which was pretty shocking. Uh, and both of their nominees got pulled. Uh, so you never know. Uh, and so I'm going to put a marker down right now for an incredibly brilliant judge, um, Stephanie Dawkins Davis of the Eastern District of Michigan. She is a district court judge, not uh, an appellate judge, but she would be phenomenal and
1: should be on anybody's list. I love the dark horse name. Thank you for yeah, that.
3: there you go. That's
2: fantastic. All right. and, and, and today was the first time I had heard Melissa Murray as um, being interviewed and really pressed on whether she had been called by Biden, whether she would take the job, Um, and of course, she handles it with extreme
0: She has an extraordinary background. We would be well-served with Melissa on the court. Oh, she'd be fantastic. It's
3: exciting. You know, the other point I want to make is um, what faith all of these women must have had in the United States as the land of opportunity when they undertook their law degree, knowing that there had never been a woman on the Supreme Court. It was a court that excluded people who looked like them. And yet they've applied themselves by studying, going to law school, working hard, becoming judges. Um, And now, you know, America wasn't ready for them when they started. Um, And and America has finally caught up. Uh, They believed in America. And uh, that's inspiring to me.
1: You know, we're into 2022, Jill, and that's usually when I get all of my affairs and papers and things like insurance in order, but sometimes it seems really daunting. Have you heard of Policy Genius? I
2: have, and it's one of those things, people don't like dealing with insurance and how important it is or thinking about it or comparing them. So Policy Genius takes away that particular stress in your life. And it's something that everyone should take a look at, don't you think so, Barb?
3: Yeah, you know, when you're so busy, you know it's important to do your homework. Um, but the uh, the best thing is to have somebody who does the homework for you and has the expertise to look into things you might not think about. And Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from top insurers all in one place. And getting started is easy. Click the link in the show description or head to PolicyGenius.com. And answer a few questions about yourself. And in minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price.
0: We all know we need it, but Policy Genius makes it easy. You can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius, and their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies, and you can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered.
3: Whether you say insurance or insurance, they won't add on extra fees or sell your information to third parties, and they've helped over 30 million people shop for insurance since 2014. Policy Genius has thousands of five star reviews across Google and Trustpilot, and you could be next. Head to
0: policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com, or look for the link in our show notes.
2: So as we've been talking, we all agree that Justice Breyer has made a significant contribution to our jurisprudence and that his dissents may someday be the law of the land, But there are still some cases awaiting argument and decision where he or his replacement will have very different views than the three Trump appointees and their three conservative colleagues. So let's talk about at least one of those pending cases. And if we have time, maybe we'll get to the EPA uh, case as well. But let's start by talking about a case that is set for next term's argument so it will likely be heard by the new justice and the reason i say likely is that his retirement is dependent on the confirmation of a new justice and so he will either leave at the end of this term when his with a new justice confirmed or he's not leaving so assuming that the new justice is approved which i will assume then she is going to be hearing these cases. And I want to start by talking first about, so our audience understands the history and the background legally, uh, the Bakke decision. And Barb, would you start us on that conversation, please, and just give us a little background on that?
3: Yeah, so affirmative action is uh, squarely in the crosshairs of the court and others who have been fighting to dismantle it now for, for decades um you know in the 1960s universities places of higher education recognized that they had a problem they wanted uh to have more people of color in their universities you know it is um a much better learning experience for everyone when you have Uh, lots of representation for the reasons we just discussed in our earlier conversation, when you have people studying alongside people from different backgrounds and perspectives. And so they began the program of affirmative action, which meant we're going to have to be aggressive about uh, casting a wider net to bring in people of uh, minorities, and in particular, African-American students uh, who had been discriminated against from slavery through Jim Crow, and as a result, were underrepresented in higher education. And so in that case, Jill, that you just mentioned, Regents of the University of California versus Bakke, uh, 1978 case, Bakke was a white applicant to medical school at the University of California. He was denied application um, and he challenged a system that they used at the University of California at their medical school. It was a quota system that set aside 16 out of 100 seats for minority candidates uh, and he said, you know, someone took my seat. Now there are other reasons he may not have been admitted, uh, that uh, that he was not qualified because there, you know, there, there are lots of people who are qualified. Uh, and it's a it's a question of who does the university want to admit. But he challenged that system, that quota system, and it was an interesting decision that stood for a long time as kind of the seminal case in a, in affirmative action. The court actually struck down that quota system and said quotas. Uh, you know, per se, that you must have X number of seats um, is not constitutional. It's a violation of the Equal Protection Clause that says, you know, in general, we don't discriminate against people based on race. But they did find that diversity in the classroom was a compelling governmental interest. It also helped that um, in these cases of affirmative action, they would use what's known as intermediate scrutiny. So for our listeners, there are kind of three levels of scrutiny that laws get. One is called rational basis. Most laws get subject to rational basis review. And that is when somebody challenges a law, um, the court says, as long as there's some rational basis for the government to pass this law, you know, we we give uh, good faith to governments that they're trying to do the right thing, as long as they're not doing it for some arbitrary reason or to punish uh, their political enemies. As long as there's some rational basis for this law, we will support it. Uh, and then there's something at the other end called strict scrutiny, which says when you are attacking a constitutional right, a fundamental right, we'll use this very very high level called strict scrutiny, which says you must have a compelling governmental interest. And the law must be narrowly tailored to achieve that compelling governmental interest. And if a law is too broad, then we'll strike that down because we recognize that there are other equities in in the matter. For affirmative action, they said, we're going to use this intermediate scrutiny. That is, you have to have an important governmental interest and the The law must be substantially related to that important governmental interest. And so, what they said is, well, yeah, diversity that's that's important. Um, and as long as it's substantially related, then we're going to say it it will pass muster. But here, we think this quota system uh, it goes too far, so we're going to strike it down. So that was the law in the books about uh, how affirmative action should work for a while. And then a big case came out of my law school, the University of Michigan Law School, a case called uh, Grutter versus Bollinger. Uh, Lee Bollinger was the dean at the time, student who applied for admission at the University of Michigan Law School was denied. She was white and she said, you know, I had this very good record, uh, so it must be because of my race race that I was not admitted. There was a companion case to the undergraduate admissions program as well at that time that both went as companions to the Supreme Court. And in that case, the court um, made some interesting decisions. The undergraduate program was struck down. Uh, In that case, if you are um, a racial minority, you got a huge number of points. They had a point system that was kind of the deciding factor. And the court said that's too much. But in the law school case, what they said is diversity is a compelling governmental interest. We understand why you want diversity in the classroom. Um, but it can't be the only factor. So as long as you look at that among other factors in deciding uh, you know if people are otherwise qualified. Uh, for law school admission, then uh, you may consider race in making that decision. And so that's been sort of the lay of the land. There've been some cases that have been, uh, you know, come up before the court, uh, but that kind of tees things up to where we are now.
2: Thank you. That is exactly the right background to have to talk about the two new cases, one against Harvard and one against the University of North Carolina. And Joyce, would you talk about what's at stake in those two cases?
0: You know, it's really interesting, Jill, to look at those cases in the context of of Justice Breyer's departure, because during his time with the Roberts Court, affirmative action has narrowly survived at least twice. And that's been in large part due to something that we know about Justice Breyer, which is that he's very good at taking what looks like it's going to be a dissent. And narrowing it a little bit and convincing enough people to come on board that he ends up with a very slender majority opinion. That's what happened in Fisher, one of the affirmative action cases, the 2013 case. And he brokered this compromise opinion that was written by Justice Kennedy. And what we know from from sources around the court is that Justice Sotomayor had written a very vehement defense um, invoking her personal story. And to avoid having that happen, Justice Breyer was sort of able to, um, let's just say, bludgeon his colleagues into not killing affirmative action Uh, and he's always been very successful, and with his voice absent, you have to really wonder what happens in the two cases the court has now agreed to hear. The North Carolina case is about the use of race to give a preference to black, Hispanic, and Native American applicants. The Harvard case is a little bit different. It has sort of an unusual twist. It's a case brought by Asian students who allege that they were discriminated against to Uh, permit other minority students to get a preference to enter Harvard. Um, Here's the problem with these cases. They both present an opportunity to the court, if it is so inclined, to do away with affirmative action. And of course, we have old cases, I think a case that's maybe 20 or or 25 years old, um, where where Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who usually lined up with the the part of the court that was in favor of continuing at least the sort of affirmative action that permitted you to use it, if not as a numerical quota, then uh, as a factor in decision-making. But she said, you know, this isn't going to be forever. Give it 25 or 30 years, and we won't need to have this forever. And I fear we're going to hear that language quoted, and this 6-3 majority will say, that day has come. We heard that in Shelby County, right, where the chief justice said, you know, there used to be discrimination, but look at all the progress that black people have made in voting. We don't really need to have Section 5 of the Voting Act anymore. And the lack of congressional data to support Section 5 really indicates that. And of course, we know that was not the case. I fear we're headed into that same terrain with affirmative action.
2: So that makes me have to say, let's remember what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. You don't throw an umbrella away in the middle of a rainstorm because you're not wet. And we see what's happened as a result of them throwing out part, uh, well, Shelby County. Um, and, and, and I also have to say that, of course, I, went, I graduated law school 10 years before Bakke's decision. And there was a quota in my law school, 5% female, 5% black. So it was a limitation. And all of the women and all of the African Americans had higher LSATs and higher GPAs than a lot of so our So the quotas male was colleagues. to keep
3: people out? We were. <laughs> yeah.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So I'm just saying I have a very strong feeling about mm. this topic. But um, Kim... Following yes. up on that, let's talk about the social and political consequences of this and whether this is you know, going to have a much broader consequence. What else could happen if affirmative action is struck down at Harvard and UNC? Uh, where else is it going to happen? What about government contracting, et cetera?
1: Yeah, listen, I think just in the education sphere alone that it would be devastating enough. And I believe, I think it's important for our listeners to understand the fact that the Supreme Court took these cases up means that the conclusion is a foregone conclusion. There have already been, uh, there, is an, there is a clear appetite even before the court moved to its 6-3 conservative majority to strike down affirmative action. It hung on to a thread because of that compromise you talked about with Justice Kennedy and the decision to take up cert while that's not always something that you could say, Oh, well that's gone. I think in this case, we can clearly say that that is gone. I want to make two preliminary points. One to the point that Jill made. I wish when I went to law school, there was a 5% quota because when I entered my law school class at Boston university in 1995, There was uh, about 400 students. There were seven Black students. That's less than 2% of my class was Black. I came from Wayne State University in Detroit, which at the time graduated more Black students than any other non-HBCU in the country. Um, And so that was quite a culture. Yes, that was quite a culture shock. When I when I arrived there. So um, that's one reason why it's so uh, important. And I just want to make another point that yes, the Harvard case technically is being brought on behalf of Asian students. That case is actually being brought by someone named Edward Blum. He is an attorney. He founded something called Students for Fair Admissions. And he has been at the at the, uh, the challenger for dozens of cases that are challenging seeking to end affirmative action in institutions. So it gives a nice little um, talking point, particularly for conservative media to say, oh, this is discriminatory to Asian students. Not one Asian student voluntarily came forward and said, hey, I'm being denied my rights. No, this is a very carefully calculated legal strategy to attack affirmative action at Harvard and other institutions. But uh, you know, getting back to your question. This is devastating for all the reasons that we've laid out. Having representation, having students that represent and look like the rest of the country is hugely important for our educational institutions for a lot of reasons. We learn not just from our professors and not just from the lesson plan and not just from uh, the, the um, syllabus, but we learn from each other in educational institutions. That's where we meet and we learn about the world. I did that as well. So not only does it deprive people who are not black or brown or Asian or from other parts of the world from gaining that understanding from us, it puts an undue burden on people like me to represent that Jim, what are uh, all the in black these people classrooms. <laughs> I represent the black people. We meet every Thursday. Our club uh, in our meeting <laughs> and our club and discuss what we are, are going to explain to, to white people that day. Yeah, it's 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 exhausting. It's exhausting for us to be in that position and have to defend. Things like that. You know, I was tweeting about my experience in school, uh, in graduate school. In one graduate class I had, uh, the the adjunct professor, without any irony, uh, gave us an assignment saying, track your family history through Ellis Island. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, what? Whoa! That's the easiest assignment I've ever had is a blank page because my family history had absolutely nothing to do with Ellis Island. But that's the idea is this, it's this centered, even when they don't mean to, even when they don't realize that they're doing it. How yeah. education is often often centered on whiteness in a way that just excludes huge parts. So affirmative action is hugely important. I will say um, that as this case makes its way to the fore, and we hopefully have that new um, Black woman justice on the court, that she can at least be someone who can speak about that lived experience to her colleagues and that it won't all fall to Justice Sonia Sotomayor um, to do. I remember one of the most profound moments as a student covering uh, a student, as a reporter covering the Supreme Court, was when the Supreme Court issued its opinion in uh, a case called Shooty, which involved uh, a challenge to a, um, a, a voter-approved constitutional amendment in Michigan. Which banned affirmative action, which banned race from being considered in admissions decisions for its public university. I am a graduate, as I said, of Wayne State University, one of the schools that was directly uh, Im- implemented, um, Im- involved in this. And Sonia Sotomayor read what I believe was her first dissent from the bench in that case. And one of the things that she said, and, and I will read it for you, said, This refusal to accept the stark reality that race matters is acceptable. Of course, the the court uh, and the chief justice being one of the major proponents of this idea that the only way to stop race from being considered is to stop considering race, as if that's the world we live in. It is not. Uh, Sotomayor wrote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to speak openly and candidly on the subject of race and to apply the constitution with eyes open to the unfortunate effects of centuries of racial discrimination. And as members of the judiciary tasked with intervening to carry out the guarantee of equal protection, we ought not sit back and wish away rather than confront the racial inequality that exists in our society. It is this view that works harm by perpetuating the facile notion that makes that Uh, What makes race matter is acknowledging the simple truth that race does matter. I will admit, even as a reporter, I was moved to tears by her bench dissent. It is so important. I think we need someone else on the bench, even if they're not in the majority, but to speak clearly and firmly in dissent as to why the decision that I think the court's going to rule is going to be so wrong.
2: Well, clearly we aren't going to have time to cover the EPA we'll do and that in
1: clean water and clean air. So we'll, we'll do that in the, in the <laughs> next episode, in another episode. In
2: next episode. <laughs> and, and, but I do have to just follow up on something, Kim, that you said, and, and Barb, you sort of jokingly commented on about do you speak for all black people. You know, as the first woman in many, many rooms, I did feel that I was representing all women and that if I blew it, that they were going to say, "Oh, we can never hire another woman. Girl. Women just can't do it." And so there is something about being one of a few or being the the first or the only that does put an additional pressure. Yes. And they say it takes 3 to have an impact in a group. So we need a third woman, and we could get a third woman, and it would be, you know, there would be two black members of the Supreme Court if, if, uh, you know, we get one of our great candidates, but it does make a difference. And so tune in again so that we'll talk about the pending dismantling of our clean water, clean air acts, um, and what harm that could do to our health and safety um, and to the regulatory administrative state.
3: Jill, you know what uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said about when we'll have enough women on the court?
0: <laughs> yes when there are nine yeah, exactly. but we've got three right nine. now right it won't be three
1: with this well it'll one. be we've... three women of color yes. if they get right. if biden gets two that's true I, I three women of co- co- yeah. okay if biden gets two yeah. picks yeah
3: hey kim do you ever feel overwhelmed by how much reading
1: you want to get done Yeah, you know, I often do. There are so many things that I want to read and learn about, but time is short. And I've heard of Blinkist. Joyce, have you heard of it?
0: You know, I have. I've been using Blinkist for almost a year, and it may be that I use it in a slightly aberrational way. But if I'm trying to pick between the 20 books that are piled up, you know, on my nightstand, I want to read all of them. And the question is, what am I going to read next? I'll often use Blinkist's short selections to try to figure out what's most important for the work I'm doing right in this moment. It's a great tool. So 2022 is here, and that means it's the perfect time to up your game personally and professionally. And that's one of the reasons that Blinkist makes sense. Blinkist is a powerful self-improvement tool that takes top nonfiction books and gives you key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks. You can digest in just 15 minutes. Imagine learning the things you never had time for and getting exciting new perspectives that will upgrade your life and career. Use Blinks to tackle procrastination, get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or absorb titles like Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World by Cal Newport, or a favorite of the podcast Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. I loved Hillary Clinton's What Happened for its incredible perspectives on
2: the changes that have upended our politics, the power of her story, and to learn the lessons that will ensure a loss like that never happens again. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. So please go to Blinkist.com sisters to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash sisters to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash sisters or look for the link in our show notes.
0: This week brought news that a county district attorney in Georgia, Fulton County's Fonnie Willis, has received court approval to use a special grand jury to investigate the former president. We've talked about this situation a lot on the podcast because Trump was captured on tape by Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, and Trump was alternately cajoling and threatening Raffensperger, trying to get him to find the 11,780 votes that Trump needed to eke out a one-vote victory in the contested state of Georgia. So, Kim, let's start with the basics. What's the significance of Willis getting permission to use a special grand jury?
1: Yeah, so this is a really big deal, and this really could mean uh, trouble for the former president. Uh, it's three points that I find. One, the distinction between a special grand jury and a regular gran- grand jury is that this grand jury would be focused exclusively on this case, on this investigation, and they won't uh, have to handle other cases and be distracted by that. So they will be very laser focused. Two, uh, the special grand jury, like any grand jury, could issue subpoenas. Compelling the witnesses who have yet to cooperate to cooperate or face uh, really uh, serious repercussions, Uh, and three, um, this is the only criminal case to have been taken up by a prosecutor focusing directly. On Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election, you talked about that call uh, to Brad Raffis, Raffensperger, um, looking for that very specific eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes, um, and and so given that, just the both the the particularity, the focus of this. Um, And the fact that you have that subpoena power. This is really a major advancement in these probes into what happened uh, in terms of election fraud and probably the one most likely to end up uh, producing some sort of indictment. Sounds good to me, Um, Barb.
0: So. We know what the conduct is, right? We've seen it. We've heard the tape. Why isn't this case already indicted? What do prosecutors have to do other than just pluck the tape out of
3: the ether and indict? (laughs) That's such a good question. And, you know, I I think that is kind of a common assumption by people who aren't lawyers. Uh, We've been talking about this in my criminal law class this week, using this example, actually. Um, You know, you can only charge a crime if there is a statute on the books. And you have to look for specific statutes and find Uh, That you have met each and every element of that statute. So, uh, you know, if there's a voter fraud statute in Georgia or there are some voter federal voter fraud statutes, you have to find the elements. And so we do have pretty good evidence of what's sometimes referred to as the actus reus, you know, demanding that Brad Raffensperger find him these 11,000 votes. But the other key element to every crime is also the mens rea. That is the guilty mind, the intent to commit a crime that you what you know you're doing is is wrongful. And, uh, you know, what what it could very well be the case here is Trump may say, I genuinely believed I had won the state of Georgia. I was told I had won the state of Georgia. And so when I was asking for those 11000 votes, I was just asking him to correctly and accurately count the votes and declare it for me, the winner, the rightful winner. Now, all the other things we've seen, like, you know, the the legal campaign strategy of filing these, you know, 64 lawsuits that have all come up empty and making these statements that are knowingly false, tells us in our gut that it's most certainly wrongful, but that's not good enough. You have to find evidence to prove to a jury of 12 strangers beyond a reasonable doubt, unanimously, that there was this guilty intent. And so because of both of those challenges, one, finding the right statute, and then two, proving this evidence of intent, there is work to be done. Now, it may very well be that she can find that work. If she can find evidence of other conversations where he acknowledges in some way that he knows that he didn't win, then that would be sufficient. It can be proved circumstantially, but it requires some work and putting people into the grand jury like Raffensberger and others will be essential to finding out what other conversations had that aren't on tape to see if she can demonstrate that requisite intent. You know, that's such a great explanation of
0: something that a lot of people, I think, are really troubled by right now. And some additional context that I think is is really helpful when we think about the challenge that prosecutors face is we all assume, right, that Trump is guilty. I mean, I've been guilty of that as well. You look at the conduct and you think, wow, he really did something wrong here. The problem is, or or maybe actually the beauty of our legal system is, that it doesn't start with that presumption of guilt. It starts with a presumption of innocence. And so the way that you have to look at the evidence in any case before you indict it, you start with that presumption that the defendant or the target is actually innocent. And the evidence that you've compiled has to overcome that presumption. And I think that helps us see why prosecutors are going through the deliberate, rigorous process that they're going through. But Jill, that said, one of the obvious key areas to find criminality, to find the statutes Barb is talking about here, is in the area of interference with With um, elections. Does that look like an area where the district attorney in Fulton County will find Georgia statutes she can use? Yes, I think so. And as Barb
2: made clear, intent is still going to be key. And it is so important for all of our listeners to, to understand that there has to be a specific statute which lays out specific elements of a crime. And then you have to have evidence that matches all of those. And it's not enough, you know, we, both as citizens and as prosecutors, can look at the news and say, well, it's obvious what's going on here. And it does seem sort of obvious to anyone listening, but that's not good enough. And you have to remember that the jury of 12 could include one member who is loyal to Donald Trump and who believes the election was stolen.
0: Jill, this is Georgia. There will be like 10 of those. Well, uh, yes, that's, I
2: I was trying to be gracious to Georgia, but yes, there will probably be more than one. But even if there was just one, because it has to be unanimous, one is enough to end a conviction. You would get at most a hung jury. Um, And in Georgia, you might get an acquittal. That's why, and I have trust in the jury system. I look back at the Manafort trial, where a Trump supporter said, I believe everything Donald Trump says, but I was sworn to pay attention to the evidence in this case, and the evidence made me vote for conviction of him on all counts, because it was obvious. So you need that evidence, and that's why you need this special grand jury where you get people under oath testifying, and you get to prove what the intent was. You can't assume the intent. And so under Georgia law, there is criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, and it can be, uh, depending on whether you're doing it in certain ways, it can be either a felony or first degree misdemeanor, it has different levels of um, responsibility, you can be prisoned for not less than one, nor more than three on some, uh, less than that on others, it it all depends on what it is. But every single one of them requires proof of intent, and that's where I think the the grand jury is going to have to focus, uh, that the person charged intended that the person they're soliciting in this case, Brad Rasenberger, um, that they intended and knew that what they were asking them was not right. And we have plenty of evidence. I think here that the conduct was a felony or maybe a misdemeanor, depending on how you read Georgia law, Um, And that they were intentionally interfering with it because the facts are that there was no possible fraud involved in the election. The count had been done and Donald Trump lost by 11,779. And what he was looking for was to overturn that and get one more so that he would be the victor. Um, But conspiracy to commit election fraud is a serious thing in Georgia And I think that that will be one of the crimes that's looked at, along with RICO and other uh, possibilities.
0: Yeah, so Barb, RICO is actually what I wanted to ask you about, because we've got this sort of rich Georgia terrain for for election crimes. We've got criminal solicitation, criminal conspiracy, and intentional interference with the performance of election duties. Those are very election-specific RICO is not. Explain.
3: Yeah, so RICO is an opportunity that it often is used to charge organized criminal activity. It's 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 short for the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, and originally designed for organized crime, you know, the mafia, uh, but it's been used in all kinds of public corruption cases. It requires some enterprise, and so it could be something that already exists, like the Trump White House and his inner circle. Um, it requires a pattern of racketeering activity, so that means not not just one crime, but a whole collection of crimes, but it only needs two or more to be a pattern. Most often there's more than that. And then it can't be any crime. It has to be crimes that are on a select list of certain serious crimes. So extortion, bribery, um, crimes of violence tend to be on there. All of those things can qualify as predicates for RICO. Um, The parties have to uh, enter into that agreement knowingly, Um, but it also allows a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, to include federal and state predicates and wrap them all into one case. And that is one of the attractive aspects of a RICO claim. So It's a big claim. It's a heavy hammer. It has a 20-year penalty. But in certain cases, it is an appropriate penalty, and it has a lot of these charging uh, benefits that we've just discussed that um, makes it easier for prosecutors to obtain a conviction. We had a prosecutor in our office who used RICO against former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick. And in closing argument, he made a really great argument, I thought, to help jurors understand it, because they had alleged a number of different uh, violent sc- uh, schemes, uh, uh, extortionist uh, schemes, fraudulent schemes. There was so much, in fact, that it it risked being overwhelming to the jury. And so he compared it to Panera Bread. As long as you find any two, it's like the you pick two menu at Panera Bread. You can pick any soup, you can pick any salad, you can pick any sandwich. You just need to pick two. And so, from among all the charges that were presented there, as long as they could find two, that would be enough to satisfy the RICO predicate uh, requirement. And so. Similarly here, um, as long as you can find two of these qualifying crimes, that would be sufficient for a RICO conviction.
0: Well, this is one that we'll be watching in, in the weeks ahead. It's interesting to note that the Georgia Supreme Court has already said that you can use RICO in political cases, sort of like what Barb is describing, the case involving the Detroit mayor. RICO is often used in situations involving organized crime, but the Georgia Supreme Court has already ruled in, in a RICO conviction involving the former head of Georgia's Labor Department. Um, the court rejected the notion that RICO was not intended to apply to an elective office holder seeking reelection. So you'll forgive the double negative involved in that holding, but essentially it says, yes, this statute can be used when someone seeks re-election And the government can prove all of the elements of the statute beyond a reasonable doubt. Lots ahead to look at in Georgia. It has been cold in Alabama. That doesn't happen all that often. But you know what it makes me do at night? I'm I'm not proud. I'm going to admit this. I've been sitting at my computer at night with a nice hot cup of tea, doing a little bit of shopping and getting some great deals using honey. How about you, Barb?
3: Yeah, you know, I I was uh, a late comer to Honey, but you all uh, convinced me that this was something I needed to have, and I, I found that it's so easy once you install it. You know, I have it on my phone. If you buy something online, it will immediately uh, search the internet for these coupon codes, and you get these instant savings that you otherwise would not have gotten. So you know, five dollars off, twenty percent off that. So it's it's really quite nice. So you know, if you're going to buy something, you might as well buy it for less. How about you, Jill? I am
2: probably the longest user of honey, and it's usually Joyce who knows everything, but this time it was me, and I find it really amazing. I just saved 40% off of a product that I thought I had a good deal when I had a coupon for 30% off, and then Honey popped up and said, no, 40%. So it's just an amazing thing. We all shop online, and you can't help feeling when that promo code box pops up that you want to put something in, and then that means going off onto another you know, link to look for a coupon. But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart, getting you the perfect deal. They support over 30,000 stores online with everything from tech to popular fashion brands and even food delivery. And so far, Honey has found its over 17 million members more than
1: $2 billion in savings. How does it work, Kim? Well, Jill, I know how it works because I used Honey, too. Joyce is brilliant, but there are some things that I know. Ask my husband. I know everything about shopping. So imagine <laughs> you're shopping on one of your favorite websites, and then you get to the checkout. The Honey button drops down, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons. Then you wait a few seconds. It doesn't take very long. Uh, Honey searches for any coupons that is listed that could work on the site that you're on, and then boom, you just watch the prices drop. It's easy. If you don't already
2: have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com sisters. That's joinhoney.com sisters. Or look for the link in our show notes.
1: And we have arrived to our favorite part of the podcast where we answer listeners' questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet using the hashtag sisters in law. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we will answer as many questions as we can. So our first question comes from Gail, who writes, will the DOJ be able to use information gained by the January 6th Select Committee should it decide to open an investigation and possibly indict Trump, the Trump campaign, and those who aided Trump? What do you guys think? Yes,
2: is the answer,
1: and it also works vice versa.
2: The committee can get information from the Department of Justice and use it in any way they want. In this case, there's no more impeachment because he's out of office, but they could use it for passing new laws. So the answer is clearly yes.
1: All right. And our next question comes from Jeff and Joan. The question is, we are hearing all about Eric Trump taking the fifth, John Eastman taking the fifth, Alex Jones taking the fifth ad nauseam. But what does this mean? Does showing up and quote, taking the fifth mean that the January 6th committee and the Justice Department is done with these people?
3: So I'll take that one. Um- No, there are a couple of options here. And remember, taking the fifth just means I'm not going to be a witness against myself. Somebody could still be charged with a crime who took the fifth. It just means, you know, we have a right not to be witnesses against ourselves. We're not an inquisition type of a a system. But there is another option, sometimes referred to as playing a trump card, no pun intended, but the trump (laughs) card is to grant immunity to witnesses. If you give them immunity, then you can compel them to testify even after they've taken the fifth, because basically what you're saying is we promise not to use what you say against you, because that's the whole point of the Fifth Amendment is we can't make people say things that can then be used against them in a criminal case. So it doesn't even mean we can't prosecute you. It just means we can't use your statements against you in a criminal prosecution. That's true even if the proceeding where they're testifying is a congressional hearing or a civil proceeding. So, you know, you've got somebody who says, John Eastman, the committee has called him to testify before the committee. He says, I take the Fifth, um, because he's worried about being prosecuted later by the Department of Justice uh, or, you know, in some criminal forum. And so what the committee could say is, uh, we're going to grant you immunity. We'll get you a compulsion order. That means you have to come in, but you, can ne- you cannot, uh, prosecutors can't use your own statements against you. And in some ways you might think, oh, that's not such a big deal. They can still prosecute him. Uh, you know, they can't compel him to testify anyway against himself. So what's the big deal? The problem is, Um, There's this thing called derivative use immunity, and it can be problematic. The case of Oliver North is an example where that came back to bite the prosecutors. He was granted immunity by Congress. He went in and told a story about the Iran-Contra hearing, and then he was charged with obstruction of justice and some other crimes. And although his statements weren't used against him, what they said is it was such a public hearing that his statements were so in the public domain that it was impossible to determine whether the evidence at his own trial was truly independent of his own statements Or were the witnesses somehow tainted by what they had heard by watching those public hearings? So when you have something that's so public like this, there is some risk that by granting them immunity, you might spoil the the possibility of prosecuting them eventually anyway. Now, maybe you make a strategic decision that, you know, Eastman will sacrifice a prosecution of Eastman to hear what he has to say. There are others that maybe you don't want to make that sacrifice at the front end without knowing what they're going to say later.
2: This was a problem during Watergate that we— dealt with in terms of worrying that in the Senate hearings they would grant immunity to someone we felt was a key defendant. Uh, And so that is something that you have to really pay attention to and and make sure that you're working with Congress to make sure they don't immunize a really valuable defendant, a high-level defendant.
1: All right. Our next question comes from Lisa 33, who asks... Uh, Do SCOTUS justices discuss cases with each other before ruling? In other words, do they debate or try to guide opinions? I can start this and and anyone else can jump into. Yes. So what happens is after a case, a a normally argued case on the merits is argued um, in oral arguments, that's the Friday of that week, the justices get together in what is known as a conference and they do. They talk about the case and they cast a vote. That's where they make their vote. Um, The Chief Justice, if he's in the majority, he assigns the case uh, to be written by one of the justices who is in the majority. Uh, and then the person who is the most senior in dissent will assign uh, the writing of dissents in that case. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier. There are times that based on that back and forth in that discussion or in the writing of the opinion as it's circulated among the other justices and they see it, it's possible for justice to say if if someone writes a dissent that is reasonable enough and that can cull other people to their side um, or write some majority opinion or a concurrence that's a, an opinion that agrees with the judgment judgment but for different reasons that can that can change the minds of other justices, they can say, you know what, I'm not going to vote in the majority. I'm going to join this concurrence. And that concurrence can become the majority opinion, even a dissent. If people say, you know what, you make a really good case here. I think I agree with that. That dissent could become uh, a majority opinion too. That happens less and less frequently, certainly with a 6-3 court. But yes, to answer your question, yes, there is a back and forth there. There is an effort to uh, convince one another after the case is argued.
0: And one thing I would add to that is that that process often starts uh, at least as early as oral argument. Because although in oral arguments, the justices appear to be asking questions of the litigants, uh, just as often they're really trying to score points off of each other and make points and begin the argument with their colleagues. That's true not just in the Supreme Court. That's also true in the courts of appeals where typically you're looking at a three-court panel and the argument among the judges about how the opinion will come out begins in the oral argument.
1: Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's episode using the hashtag sisters in law. And don't forget to go to politicon.com slash merch to buy some of our fun merch. We're all wearing ours today. And remember for our show's one year anniversary, share some of your favorite things that you've learned from listening to our podcast by posting on Twitter, using the hashtag sisters in law. My sisters and I will be sharing and discussing our favorites on Sunday. January 30th, and one lucky fan will win a hashtag sisters in law prize pack. It's very exciting. This week's sponsors are Policy Genius. Blinkist, Honey, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. And keep up with us every week by following hashtag SistersInlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. And please give us a five star review. It really helps others find our show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag SistersInlaw.
3: Yay. Happy anniversary, happy sisters. Anniversary. That was super comfy. happy. You know, our, our anniversary is on January 30th. I think, you know how there's Super Bowl Sunday, which is always like the first Sunday in February. I think there should be now Sisters-in-Law Sunday. Sisters-in-Law oh, Sunday. Sunday. in Sunday. Sunday in January is Sisters-in-Law Sunday. I, I
1: think, think that that should like be that. a law. We
3: could have a party, make chili. Someone should
1: speak to President <laughs> Biden and he should um, do an executive <laughs> order. Dana, this is the We need Absolutely. a holiday. <laughs> you know what's been in my head all day? Do you guys? I, I, I was a big. I still am a big uh, Flintstones fan. And remember that love song, "Happy anniversary. anniversary." Happy Anniversary. Happy <laughs> Anniversary. Like, like I send it to my and or, every
3: year on our anniversary. <laughs> Barney and the Cops and the Piano. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> That's been in my head all day. Maybe I'll tweet. Maybe I'll find a, a, a gif of that and tweet it. I want you to sing it. Can you just just like sing
3: it and videotape (laughs) yourself and and do that on Twitter? Sam, I I cannot believe you and I are on the same page on that such a weird thing. (laughs) Is that a Michigan thing? No. I don't know.
1: I feel like the Flintstones was worldwide. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. For a cheerful toast and fill it.
3: Happy anniversary. But be careful you don't fill it. (laughs) Happy anniversary. Yes. Happy anniversary. Happy
1: anniversary. Well done. Boy, that made Maddie me happy. <laughs> I'm
0: going to be singing that in my head all weekend now. Damn it! <laughs> <The> greatest. <laughs>